This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we have an interview about how species have changed through time on the Colorado Plateau. It's a good show. Stay with us. Science and scientists, not perfect by any means. But still, there's an idealistic purpose behind the whole enterprise, and that's been very rewarding to feel like I'm participating in a larger enterprise that's very worthwhile and and aspires to very high ideals. Today on Science Moab, we speak with Dr. Laura Hunicky. She's a plant population and community ecologist at Northern Arizona University. She also serves as an academic administrator and as a vocal advocate for human diversity in the sciences. Here we talk with Dr. Hunicky about the long-term changes to plant and animal communities that have occurred on the Colorado Plateau. We begin our interview by talking about how much the Colorado Plateau has changed over the centuries and how different it may have been from what it is today. We're fortunate that we have tools like our analysis of pack rat middens and the like that can show us very dramatically, very physically, hey, these plant species were or were not growing in this very specific location at various periods in the past. The Colorado Plateau has seemingly been sensitive to climatic changes in the past, and we know there have been periods of severe drought, you know, multi-decadal drought periods, and periods of greater moisture in the vegetation and uh, plant and animal populations definitely responded to that. Human populations definitely responded to that. There are still some really interesting scientific questions out there about how abundant were some of the large ungulates like bison or elk or the like. And then of course the rate of change has been very dramatic since then. And so when we when we go out there we can definitely feel confident in knowing that it's not always looked like the way that it looks like now. That's right. <laughs> we can feel confident that there have been tremendous changes. Uh, we have varying degrees of confidence in trying to reconstruct what it was like at various points in the past. Would you venture to say that at different points it would be almost unrecognizable to go be in one spot and you just got transferred back or do you still kind of be able to characterize it as a semi-arid sort of landscape or is that too difficult of a question? It would indeed be recognizable or at least the major components and the major ecological players would be recognizable to us today, but they'd be distributed spatially differently across the landscape at various points in the past than they are today. 
what we learn from looking at paleoecology or the history of these communities is that species have not always migrated in concert with one another. So we would go back in the past, we would recognize many of the species, but they wouldn't be in exactly the same combinations that we find them today. In this volume, there's a lot of talk in, in the introduction that you wrote on um, science and management at a landscape scale. And I was wondering, what does that really mean? Landscape seems like a pretty ambiguous term sometimes. Well, from a scientific perspective, ecologists speak of landscapes in order to emphasize the mechanisms that link a stream and the soil surfaces surrounding it or the high elevations of the mountains and the lower elevations of the basins or the valleys where those sediments erode or where the organisms migrate up and down seasonally. It's an attempt to remind us all that political boundaries particularly are arbitrary. Land ownership boundaries are arbitrary and a lot of the ecological processes take place across those boundaries. So our our management of a particular grassland or a particular mountain range or a particular stream really ought to be informed by what's going on in the surrounding area and we'll be much more successful in managing if we pay attention to what's going on in the surrounding landscape. That sounds important and challenging. <laughs> very, very challenging because, of course, uh, how do you study nutrients moving throughout an entire watershed or migratory animals over an entire landscape? Uh, it is very challenging, both from the human perspective and the technical perspective. Along those lines, um, in the volume you talk about resource management and conservation and studying ecology and you talk about doing that in an active way. Active resource management, active conservation and I was wondering what mm. does active mean to you? What is, what is that that you're trying to convey when you say active? I think that still today even professionals involved in conservation and in resource management tend to think in terms of protection. We'll put up a fence and we'll keep out the damaging large grazers. We'll put up a fence and we'll keep out the damaging off-road vehicles. We'll change the management status of this particular part of the landscape to wilderness and therefore it will be protected. The truth is that so many of the changes and pressures going on today can't be kept out by fences or by the name on a protected unit, something becoming a park or a preserve or a wilderness area. We have weeds and invasive species spreading across landscapes and they don't really care if it's called a wilderness or not. We have climate change and uh, dramatic changes in the occurrence of extreme weather events or just changes in average temperatures or precipitation regimes. All of this is to say that putting a fence around a system is not adequate 
to preserve it in its original or its pristine conditions. Managers are challenged today to take a much more active role, make some active decisions about what components or what characteristics of the system do you want to preserve? And what components or characteristics of the system are maybe out of your control and you're just going to have to live with the changes? Managers are going to be making decisions about what they want to restore or what they want to eliminate and what they want to maintain. And then they're going to have to take some very active steps to achieve that, whether it's dust or it's weed seeds or it's water flow or it's storms uh, or it's migrating animals, uh, we really need to attend to what's going on outside the arbitrary boundaries of our management unit. People are inspired by these landscapes and it's easier here to develop that truly long-term perspective about stewardship of the landscape. So yes, people get very passionate about understanding it and protecting it. Dr. Hunicke speaks passionately about trying to increase the diversity of juror in science fields. Here she is talking about her motivations behind her work towards a more diverse scientific community. That's what really motivates me to work on diversity in STEM, is that the world has a lot of really deep challenges and we need as many minds as possible and as diverse and creative and imaginative and passionate minds as possible to work on these problems or we don't really have good prospects. Dr. Hunicke entered science at a time when the field was still heavily dominated by white men. As a result, she has interesting insight into her own ability to break into science, as well as thoughts on how far the field still has to go. In some ways, it's depressing to think about this problem from the perspective of my whole career and personal experience. You know, I started in graduate school at a time when people were starting to pay attention to opportunities for women and to gender diversity in science fields. And at that time, it was exciting to think that graduate programs were becoming better balanced in terms of recruiting and admitting men and women into PhD programs. I think we all took for granted back then that diversity at other levels would just automatically follow. If, if we had a starting group of half and half men and women in this PhD program in ecology, then somehow automatically, 10 years or so later, faculty would be diversified at universities across the country. Um, and that just hasn't happened. You know, we, I see it on Twitter almost a, a weekly basis. You know, some prominent uh, conference that's just announced 
the invited speakers for some high-profile symposium or the like, and they're all men, or they're 90% men and 10% women, and they're all white. I mean, it's um, still so prevalent today, and uh, it's just mind-boggling. I did apply to graduate school at a time when there was increasing opportunity for women to be admitted to graduate programs. Although I had very few female faculty as an undergraduate, vanishingly few <laughs> as a graduate student, I was a postdoc in a department that had very, very few female faculty. On the other hand, at each of those stages, I was fortunate to find mentors who were personally very encouraging to me. I had a very supportive family behind me. didn't really understand this whole business of a PhD and <laughs> why one would become a professor, much less how one becomes a professor. But, you know, sure, if you want to do it, we're behind you all the way. And then I was incredibly fortunate to land my first faculty job in a department that had a fair number of female faculty who had already gone through the whole tenure process. They were full professors. Nobody ever had to say to me, well, gee, we've never had a woman do this, that, or the other before. Uh, we have female faculty to put in front of those students yeah. and make sure that a woman who signs up for some of these classes can't say the way I said when I was an undergraduate, hmm, you know, no women here on the faculty. I wonder if women ever become professors. Yeah. Here you can't ask that question. I'm interested in what first got you interested in science and especially in some of the ecological patterns mm. that you that you studied and are continuing to study. I grew up in the suburban Midwest. We lived in this developing suburb where we had remnants of woodlands where you could go out and explore and find spring wildflowers and birds and snakes. And, and I was encouraged by my family to spend time outdoors and explore. And we were also fortunate to be able to take summer vacations every year. And so we would visit national parks or we would go camping in some of the remaining national forest areas in the Midwest. We weren't super outdoorsy, we weren't backpacking in the wilderness, but it was enough exposure to the natural world that my interests were piqued. My parents then were very supportive of my interests in science, and this is in the years following Sputnik and the explosion of interest yes. and the, that first big push to trying to get people interested in science and technology. So schools were offering more courses and schools were trying to recruit a broader range of people into technical fields. So even though my parents, neither of my parents had the opportunity to graduate from college, so in many ways I'm a first-generation student, I still felt considerable support for pursuing academic interests and higher education. And 
And then in college was fortunate to encounter mentors who pointed out that becoming a professor was actually a career opportunity and it was possible and here's how you do it. You apply to a graduate program and here's what graduate programs are like. So I, I had a lot of personal support and encouragement. What is it that you enjoy about being a scientist? I am at heart a really idealistic person. Science is one of those human endeavors that we can be proud of. You know, we're attempting to learn about the natural world and understand it for the betterment of people and of the world itself. We're attempting to use objective measures to understand the world as best we can. We attempt to be honest and adhere to the highest standards of integrity when we're carrying out our work and when we're publishing our work. I have found that very satisfying through my career. Thank you very much for this interview. It's been really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. To listen to this interview with Dr. Laura Hunicky again, or any past shows, visit kzmu.org or download them on iTunes or Stitcher. The music is by Jeremy Spalding. Funding comes from BYU's Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.